This is the Marketing Hero Podcast by ClearPivot, turning marketers into heroes. Welcome to the Marketing Hero Podcast. Did you know that we also have a newsletter? That's right, you can join today at clearpivot.com slash newsletter to get monthly emails with our best tips on topics like effective lead generation, creating content that attracts and connects with your prospects, and how to get started with inbound marketing. Sign up for the Marketing Hero newsletter at clearpivot.com slash newsletter for SaaS marketing insights that will move your metrics. Welcome back. I'm Maya Morgan-Wells, host of the Marketing Hero Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We are now heard in more than 50 countries. I was looking at our podcast stats and noticed a lot of listeners in India, Mexico, the Netherlands, even a few in Bangladesh and Japan. We're so grateful for the opportunity to talk marketing with all of you heroes out there. Please make sure to leave us a review so more people can find us. On today's episode, we're starting a new era for the Marketing Hero Podcast. We'll be narrowing in to focus on stories from the trenches and advice from ClearPivot founder, Chris Strom. ClearPivot is a marketing agency focused on demand generation, a HubSpot Platinum partner, and the sponsor of this podcast. For the next few episodes, we'll get an inside look into Chris Strom's brain, where there is tons of information on how to become your own marketing hero. Right now, we're getting into the five most common mistakes Chris has seen in over 10 years of working with marketing clients in a variety of industries. Chris Strom, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Maya. So I want to start off with the question we ask all of our guests, even though I do know you well already. What's your favorite part of your career and how did you figure that out? My favorite part is uh, definitely the combination of being able to do the the technical stuff as well as the business strategy side and the creative side as well. So even back uh, growing up, my kind of two main interests were like technical computer stuff on one side and like creative uh, artistic stuff on the other side. Um, So and like in high school, I would uh, go to like animation classes hand-drawn animation classes. And also uh, I was exploring things like computer programming too. Uh, to be honest, it was a lot harder to learn programming then than it is now because you basically had to learn just on straight C++. There was no, <laughs> there was no YouTube and course and no like Replit or Team Treehouse or anything like that. But, uh, but yeah, those are always basically my my two main like areas of interest and I could never really choose which one to focus on so my favorite part now is it's actually some of both um, as well as the business side and the entrepreneurial side as well so it sounds like owning an agency is the perfect spot for you you've been doing this for a long time haven't you had clear pivot for over 10 years yeah I started it in 2009 so um, as of the time we're recording this, it was actually 13 years ago, which is wow. wild. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like we're doing something right, I guess, here. Um, and it basically, 
grew out of a free freelance web development work I was doing at the time. Uh, you just uh, building websites for people basically uh, using WordPress and it uh, it was going pretty well. And so I incorporated a business entity and uh, decided to see how far I could run with it. And so that's how it started. And then we started moving more into the the digital marketing demand generation side, not too long after that, probably about a year or two. A lot of it was from the requests from the customers we were working with after we would build a site. They would uh, say, hey, I need help with running the Google ad campaigns, or I need help making sense of all these uh, web analytics reports. I don't know what they mean. And uh, so it kind of grew into that, into what we do today, which is 80 to 90% uh, demand generation marketing now. And over that 13 year period, how many clients would you say you've had? Now I'm asking you to do math. <laughs> oh man, I mean, I'd have to go back and count. Generally, there's around 15 to 18 clients at any one point uh, that we're currently working with. I literally like have to pull our QuickBooks records to check and see. <laughs> well, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's a lot of different types of businesses, I'm sure, and a lot of different personalities to work with and all of that, a lot of different levels of knowledge to work with. And I know having worked with you for several years, you are the most patient logical person. You have that personality that, that really is able to work with sort of anyone. And I couldn't say that for myself. So I find that really impressive. Um, I actually want to get into the juice of why we're here today, which is to talk about some really common mistakes that you have seen in these hundreds of clients. Um, whether that's in the marketing tactics they're doing the way that they're executing things, the personnel, any of those things, what are some of the really common mistakes that you're seeing or missteps that you're seeing among digital marketing or demand generation clients in this business? I was thinking through and there's a, there's a couple that I see happen fairly commonly. And uh, so, yeah, I wrote up a list of five things that I see companies doing that um, are, they could be spending their time doing something else. I really want to know what's, what's the first big mistake that you see lots of companies making? Um, the first one is, uh, uh, I was actually surprised. I still see this, but it's just as common now as it was like literally 10 years ago. And, um, that is, uh, uh, buying lists of people and then mass emailing them without their consent. Mm. I really thought it would have died away. Um, but it hasn't. In fact, it's uh, maybe gotten more prominent. I know for me personally, every morning, like clockwork between like 7 and 9 a.m., I'm getting multiple uh, emails from people I've never heard of pitching me stuff. And it's almost part of my morning routine, reaching for the spam button in my Gmail. I get the temptation to, oh, you know, let's just, let's just buy a list of 10,000 people and go like, you know, go pitch them. And uh, so I see the temptation sounds really easy. Um, but yeah, it, it, it just doesn't work really. You know, well, the main thing is it's uh, against the terms of service of every email marketing platform, you know, whether it's HubSpot or Acton or MailChimp or Marketo or constant contact. 
Um, it's against their terms of service because people using their systems for spam hurts them too. So you're violating their terms of service. You can get your account suspended. People will click spam. They'll they'll uh, report you. You know, Gmail has the spam report spam button built right in there. Super easy to click. I use it a lot. And every time it's reporting spam, that's a, a, a negative ding on your domain authority. And if enough people are doing that, then eventually the email service providers like Gmail, Office 365, Yahoo, Outlook, all of them, eventually they might say, you know, maybe we shouldn't trust any emails from this company's domain. Maybe we should just send them all to junk. And um, we so definitely that's, don't uh, want that. Yeah, and then nobody ever hears from you. So that's a big risk. Um, and then best case scenario is even if that doesn't happen, um, it just doesn't work. People just ignore it. They delete it or they ignore it. Um, it has almost a 0% success rate. Understand. All right. So don't buy lists. That's a, a big piece of advice from Chris Strom here on the Marketing Hero podcast. What's number two, Chris, the, the second big mistake you see companies making in marketing? Uh, the second big one we see, you know, so you're doing your marketing, you're getting, you know, you're working the leads, you're working to get the, the sales qualified leads or, you know, the people requesting consults and requesting demos and things like that. Those are the leads you want to bring into your pipeline. Um, and a lot of times, uh, I'm always surprised at how oftentimes there's a, a lack of process and lack of discipline for actually following up with those sales qualified leads. Um, it's uh, so common to just find a lot that have fallen through the cracks. They come in, their life cycle stage is marked as a sales qualified lead. And then the goal, the the correct response is then to make a deal for them. And once they do that, the contact deal stage should become, or the contact lifecycle stage will go from sales qualified lead to opportunity. Our rule of thumb is you should basically never have any more sales qualified leads in this in your system because they've all either been converted into opportunities or they've been disqualified and just removed altogether. Do you see any common pattern on why those are not followed up? It slips people's minds. And um, it slips people's minds be usually because they don't have a defined and uh, consistently executed process. If you don't define your process and follow it like clockwork, it'll, it'll just happen. Yep. So define that process and follow up on it every single time you have an SQL. That's another great piece of advice, Chris. So what's number three? What other mistake are people making out there? That actually was a really big one, just leaving SQLs. I mean, after you spent all this time and money marketing to get them to that stage, to just let them fall through the cracks, that sounds like a really, really big one. So I'm going to write that down at my desk. What's number three that everybody can get ready to write down? Mm, number three is uh, shifting over to the content creation side of things. When you're producing your marketing content, like, you know, your webinars, your blog articles, your landing pages, your product and service pages, uh, your email campaigns, all of that is your, your marketing content. And um, oftentimes, especially in more 
technical or uh, medical or scientific industries, you need subject matter experts involved in that. That's much more difficult to pull off than people think. And so the biggest mistake is um, people don't make a plan for the whole process of involving subject matter experts in the content creation. So you, you have to define who's going to do what. Is the subject matter expert going to be the writer or will there be another writer who then interviews the subject matter expert? And after the interview and the draft, does the subject matter expert need to review it again? How many rounds of revisions are you going to plan on? How are you going to block out the schedule for all of those milestones and meetings? Uh, that is significantly more challenging from a logistical perspective than people often realize up front. The result is that there is usually enormous delays in getting it finished. Some clients we've, we've had it gets delayed for like literally months. You know, we'll do like one initial interview with the subject matter expert. We'll write up the draft. Subject matter expert wants to take a look at it again and review it first. But, you know, they have their job doing the actual subject matter. And uh, so it gets on the back burner for them. Yet the delays can turn into weeks or even months very quickly. So not making a plan up front for the process of involving the subject matter experts is a very big and very common mistake. It's almost mandatory to have the subject matter expert involved because you just can't have the company risking publishing something that's off. So it's almost mandatory for the subject matter expert to be involved in, in some of these areas. And to plan ahead for that process to happen. Yeah, you can't get around it. So you're just going to need to plan for it. And uh, just winging it is not going to work. Yeah, I definitely identify with that waiting period on hearing back from the subject matter expert with their final approval. And then your content train just kind of comes to a screeching halt while you're waiting for that. Or, you know, you try to do the best you can. But like you said, certain cases, you really just can't. Um, that's why the mm. other person is the expert, right? That's why they're doing their business. Well, I want to come to number four now on the fourth big mistake that you see a lot of companies making with marketing, you know, digital marketing or demand generation. What do you got for us at number four, Chris? The fourth thing I oftentimes see is companies getting too excited about automation and automation tools and um, getting too wrapped up in over-automating everything. So one common area I see this in is in marketing automation workflows. Um, like we, we work a lot in HubSpot and so we build a lot of automation workflows in there. It's very easy to get very, very starry-eyed on them. And especially, you know, if the company has just signed up for the platform and they got the whole sales demo from the sales rep and they're like, wow, look at all these like rules and branches we can set up. And uh, a fair amount of that is oftentimes very useful. But, uh, you know, some people have, you know, we, one of our recent clients, we went in and they had, uh, I think it was, they had about 200 separate automation workflows set up in their HubSpot portal. Wow. And 
they didn't even remember what they were for or why they were set up or how they're set up. And so it's taking us hours just to go through it to make sense of what's going on in there. So marketing automation workflows. Um, sometimes you can get in overexcited with things like uh, forms and setting up logic and dependent fields in the form. Like, well, if they choose this option in the form, we want this additional thing to fly out. And if they select that option on that thing, then this text box shows up. Um, so that's another area too. It's very easy to just get very excited about all the things you can do, but uh, it sometimes is just not worth doing it. You're spending more time building the automation and then you know troubleshooting and maintaining the automation than you would just doing a little bit more manually. Where do we draw the line on too much automation? Because of course, automation in certain ways is really helpful. That's why it exists, right? But when you're getting into this territory of over-automating or being overly excited, how do you set up that guardrail or what are the questions you ask yourself to make sure what you're doing is actually valuable? Mm, kind of one general rule of thumb I have is just thinking through how many people are actually going to be going through this. We worked with one client where we were setting up about 20 different automation workflows and each workflow probably had about 10 to 20 branches within it. And they, they really, they really, really wanted it and they insisted it be built that way. So we were building some of them. And then I was just thinking like, you know, is this going to be a case where we set all these up and then six months later, only three people have gone down this particular branch and like four people have gone down that branch and there's only a single digit amount of people going through it. I think that's a pretty good indication that you're probably making this too complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that does make sense. So yeah, ask yourself, is this automation really needed and how many people are going to be going through it? That's a really good rule of thumb. All right, so we've come to number five, the fifth common mistake that you're seeing lots of companies making with digital marketing and demand generation. What's this last fifth big mistake? Hmm. So the fifth one would be basically inflated expectations of your digital analytics tools. You can get a lot of data from your web analytics tools. So that's the, the cool thing about it, um, but you can't get everything from it. Um, especially these days, there's, you know, people are like switching between devices. They might be on their work computer, then they're on their home computer, and then they're on their phone. Maybe there's a tablet in there. So they're moving between different devices. And so that is a big roadblock to the analytics as they're switching devices. You know, more and more, there's cookie blocking. iOS is the most famous for cookie blocking. But uh, Firefox has been doing that for even longer themselves. And uh, at some point, sooner or later, Chrome's going to be blocking third-party cookies. So those are challenges and obstacles on a technical level. And then just behaviorally, actions like word of mouth, um, what gets called like dark social, like direct messages, Slack chat channels, Discord chat channels now, emails internally between people at the same company on the behavior side. So 
there's a lot that you can track, of course, in Google Analytics and HubSpot Analytics and uh, you know Acton, Marketo Analytics, and all of that. But you just can't track everything. It's easy to think you can, though, because for the last ten years, the biggest voices in the marketing world have been the technology platforms themselves. Basically, they have the biggest budgets to promote their point of view. So they go around talking about how wonderful and great and perfect digital analytics are. And so I think that's what's led to the inflated expectations. There's a lot that you can't track, especially in the last year, I've really come to appreciate more and more accepting how much you can't track. Yeah, I was actually just reading a small thing from Rand Fishkin the other day about this, where he was talking about, you know, somebody may see a post, not even interact with it. They just notice your brand name. They know that you do what they need. They've maybe seen you around in other channels and they end up searching your brand name in Google. But so that'll Mm, come through in your attribution tracking. That'll come through as, you know, branded keyword search, organic traffic. But really, it's from a LinkedIn post that you did or a podcast that you had. So I thought that was really interesting. I'm actually curious, Chris, do you think there's a place for attribution in marketing reporting anymore? Yeah, I definitely (laughs) believe there's still a place for it, especially oftentimes by combining the web analytics with more of the self-reported attribution, asking them how they found us. You Mm -hmm. can usually get Overall, not a hundred percent, but you can at least see the main trends. Mm-hmm. And does that help to inform where you invest? Yeah, yeah, it definitely helps to inform where you invest, and we we look at that every day. Of course, things like the paid advertising platforms are probably the most granular in terms of the data they report. So it is it is very useful, and we we look at the analytics continuously, but just kind of accepting that, you know, they won't tell everything. In particular, they'll over-report organic search and direct traffic in particular. Right. Do you ask leads where they heard about ClearPivot? Yeah, we just started to about two months ago. And has that Um, shown different results than some of the analytics tools? For us, we have done a lot of content marketing, SEO-focused content marketing. And so we do get a lot of leads directly from uh, organic search. And we know it's from organic search. Like we wrote up a big, big guide on senior living marketing. And that gets good search rankings. And we can see when we look in HubSpot, we get a lot of people coming. They do an organic search and they land on that, on that senior living marketing guide. And so that's pretty clear. They found us through the content that we wrote. Um, It's more when you get into like, you see people Google searching and landing on your homepage. They're most likely coming in, not because they were searching for you by name. And that's the, the part that takes a little more intuition and is not just, uh, you can't get it immediately from the numbers. So the numbers are important, but they're not everything is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Yeah. They're about 65% of everything, but not (laughs) 100%. What you're saying is really important because it's not possible to attribute every single action. And we are marketing to humans, so we can't forget about that. 
So as we've talked, you've kind of thrown out a few solutions to each thing and how we can overcome those mistakes. Do you have any advice out there for people who might find that they're doing some of these things? You can understand that you're not the first one to do it. You don't have to beat yourself up too much. You can change directions and uh, stop doing any of those things. You know, some of them, like if you kind of over automated things, you're not going to like ruin things by that. You know, you just maybe spent more time that could have been spent better elsewhere. So, you know, don't beat yourself up. You can move on, you know, change directions. And um, honestly, more and more, the best advice I can give is just, just keep going. Like, just don't give up. You know, you can pay attention to the analytics and do your research and plan your strategy. But oftentimes the best thing is just not giving up. Well, there you have it. Just don't give up. This marketing thing is always a process. We're always learning, trying new things and iterating. So we can think about that on the micro level or the macro level for our entire career. So I think that that was a lot of great advice, Chris. Thank you for sharing with us the five common pitfalls that you see lots of companies making in marketing. I hope that a few of us can avoid those pitfalls in the coming months and just keep on moving forward. Thanks for joining us on the Marketing Hero Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Maya. You've been listening to the Marketing Hero podcast by ClearPivot. Be sure to join us next time. For more information, visit www.clearpivot.com.